I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Revelation. We've been talking about the seven churches of Revelation that Jesus addressed. And I think that what we're finding, I hope that what you're finding is that not only is um, not only are these letters rich and these sermons rich in history, I've been trying to, and I know Josh will do this in the coming weeks as well, we've been trying to give you backstory, we've been trying to give you some context so that you understand exactly why Jesus is writing what he is to these very specific churches. So we find that they're rich in history, but we also find that they're rich in application, certainly for the church that Jesus was addressing in the day, but also rich in application for us today. And I think what's interesting is that as we go through this, the progression of churches, okay, I want you to understand that the order that Jesus addresses these different churches in is very intentional. It might seem like they're just random cities in Asia Minor along like the western coast of modern day Turkey, but I think what we find is as we progress from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira and all the way down to Laodicea, what we see is that they all go in order as if you were taking a road traveling from city to city to city. And it almost goes in a loop. And it's, it's almost as if Jesus told John, you are to write these things down, and then whoever delivers these letters, I want you to start at Ephesus. And from Ephesus, you're going to go north to Smyrna, and you're going to deliver a letter to Smyrna. And then from Smyrna, you're going to go a little bit further north into Pergamum, and you're going to deliver a letter to them as well. And then from Pergamum, you're going to go east and a little bit south over to the church in Thyatira. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're looking at the city called Thyatira. And I want to talk to you a little bit about them and give you some history because Thyatira was a departure from all of the other cities that we've talked about so far. Okay. Um, and while the previous cities that we've addressed so far, they may have been like state capitals. Some of them were like world-class cities. They were centers of worship. They were very cultured and cosmopolitan. They were very diverse and wealthy cities. Thyatira was built to be something completely different. It was a departure from all the other cities. You see, Thyatira was built um, pre-Christ and uh, early centuries before Christ by Alexander the Great. And he built this city called Thyatira to be a military outpost. Okay, So it was strategically placed so that in order that if Enemies from the east wanted to invade the treasured, the crown cities of like Pergamum and Smyrna and Ephesus. They would first have to go through the city of Thyatira. And so Thyatira was basically an outpost. And so any kind of enemy army that was coming through to attack cities on the coast would first have to go through the armies that were posted in uh, base camps in Thyatira. So Thyatira is a very average city, much like we would view maybe Mansfield, Ohio, okay? So many people see Mansfield, and I know many of you have lived here your entire life, and maybe you see Mansfield as something different, but I would say that in my conversations with people over the last four years, I think that many people see Mansfield as kind of a a mediocre middle America, okay? Um, Many people see Mansfield as a city whose best days are probably in the rearview mirror, um, it's not necessarily glamorous. It's not necessarily growing like Columbus is. It hasn't yet um, made its comeback like Ashland has. 
But I believe a comeback is coming for Mansfield. I believe that things are happening where Mansfield is going to be once again a great city that it was so many years ago. There's not, if we're being honest, there's not a ton of opportunity to have a lot of wealth here. There's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of opportunities for tech where the business is and where the money is. There's not a lot of opportunity for adventure and for tourism, those kinds of things. I mean, you think about tourism in Mansfield and what is the one draw that we have? A prison that was in a film in 1994, okay? Pretty neat. It's still really cool, but that's about all we have to offer and that's okay. But here's the reality of living in a city like Mansfield. You can make a great life here, and many of you have. You've had a great life here in this town. And so I say all that about Mansfield because Thyatira is very much, ancient Thyatira is very much like modern-day Mansfield. It's kind of a blue-collar labor town where manufacturing drove the economy. They had things like silversmithing and bronze smithing were really important to the, to the local economy. Pottery making was important. Leather working, linens, colorful textiles, all of these were major uh, commodities within the economy of Thyatira. You know, it's said, as I did a little bit of research and a little bit of digging, it's said that there is the, 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 the water in Thyatira was so rich with minerals that there was no place like it in the known world that could make red textiles or purple dye quite like the city of Thyatira could. Now, if you know your New Testament at all, you know that Paul, the very first convert that he had in all of Europe was in the city of Philippi. And he converted a woman named Lydia to Christ. And Lydia was a seller of purple. And Lydia was from where? Thyatira. Okay, so we see like some connections, and I want to let you know that also in Thyatira, there was, um, there was a major part of the culture there. The guilds, the trade guilds were a, a major part of the culture. It was a part of what they did every day. It was known for that. And these trade guilds or these unions were very similar to what we would, uh, what we see today, the United Auto Workers, the UAW, maybe the, the SAG, the, the Screen Actors Guild, maybe the NFLPA, the NFL Players Association. These guilds, or these, um, uh, these unions protect, they protect workers. And so the guilds in Thyatira were very powerful employers, but they were also powerful protectors as well. And they dominated every aspect of work and personal life. And if you had a job, you most likely were a part of one of these guilds and they protected you. And each and every one of these guilds also had a patron God. They had a patron deity that they would worship specifically at their regular gatherings. And at these gatherings, they did some pretty um, raunchy things, I would say. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of sexual immorality um, going on at these meetings and these gatherings. They were sacrificing animals to the different gods. They were eating the meat that was offered up to these gods. They were practicing various other pagan, um, pra- pagan practices. And the problem was is that the Christians were expected to participate in all of these ungodly practices. And so it made life very difficult for Christians who worship the one true God who refused to worship all of these little g gods that they worshiped in the day. And so compromise became a solution. It became an answer for the church and Thyatira. It was an easy solution to deal with the pressure that they were facing on an everyday basis in the culture. 
And so Jesus has a strong word for the church in Thyatira. And I want to read these words to you, starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. So join me there. We're going to read down through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to break it down. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write this, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned that some of the, they have not learned some of the, um, sorry, they hold to these teachings who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen posts are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus delivers a strong word to this church, a word of caution. He has a little bit of commendation, but he has a lot of correction here as well. And he's delivering this this word to this specific church, but it's also a word to us today, just like all of these letters are. The church that Jesus desires will actively combat against corruption and compromise. We have to fight against compromise every day as a church. And based on what Jesus said in this text, there are certain things that he wants us to become as a church. And this is going to lead me to five quick points. Number one, Jesus wants us to be a church that magnifies Christ as the Son of God. He wants us to be a church that magnifies Christ as the Son of God. As he starts out in verse 18, he says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You know, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned about the guilds earlier in my sermon, and each one of these guilds had a patron god or a patron deity that they worshipped specifically in that guild, but they also, all of them kind of worshipped one god in particular, and his name was Apollo. Now, Apollo was considered to be the son of Zeus, and who do we know Zeus to be? He was the king of kings. He was the God of all gods, which made Apollo the son of God. Okay? So you can see the connection here. You can see how Satan is sneaking in and he's trying to deceive. He's trying to, he's taking a little bit of truth and he's deceiving people. And this is what these, these people were buying into in the city of Thyatira, that they were buying into a counterfeit truth that Apollo was the son of God. And Jesus is coming along and he's saying, listen, Apollo is not the son of God. I am the son of God and I have eyes like fire and I have feet like burnished bronze. Jesus is reminding them of his rank 
and his title and his authority and what he is capable of if he imposes his power and his name to a people. And we know that Jesus, he has the eyes like flames of fire. He's capable of seeing all that we try to keep in the dark. He sees our actions. He sees our attitudes. He sees through our motivations. He sees through our masks that maybe we even wear on Sunday morning. He has feet that are like burnished bronze. Like the bronze utensils in the day of Thyatira, they were known for making really ornate bronze um, uh, tools, and they were strong and powerful. Jesus is unrivaled in the same way in his strength and in his glory. And how many times, folks, do we act as if Jesus does not see what's going on in our life? As if he's ignorant to what we are doing and what we were falling into. How many times do we act as if he is impotent to correct us? Like he is not powerful enough to set us straight. Jesus is reminding this church, this is who I am. This is who you worship. This is who you magnify. And it's a great reminder for us today that folks, we live for an audience of one. You know, we are distracted on every side by all of these things the enemy loves to throw at us in order to get our eyes off of Jesus. And we want to impress our bosses and we want to impress our neighbors and we want to impress the people, honestly, that don't really matter. Maybe even try to impress the people that we're sitting in a pew next to. But the reality is, folks, is that we live for an audience of one and it's his name that we glorify. It's his name that we magnify. Psalm chapter 34 says this. David was saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. I, um, his praise shall continually be on my mouth. So, uh, David said, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is the Christ that we should worship. This is the Son of God who is the focus of all of our affection. He's saying, remember who you are about, church. Don't get distracted with all of these things. Don't look this way in the left. You magnify Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what he wants from his church, number one. Number two, he wants a church that advances in good and faithful work. He wants a church that advances in good and faithful work. Verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. You know, this, is, this is kind of high praise for a struggling church. Jesus is he's commending them. He's complimenting them. And they were commended for their love and their faith and their service and their endurance. They were trending in the right direction. Their zeal for the Lord was as strong as it had ever been. Scripture says that their latter works were even greater than their earlier works, but not everything was all right in this church in Thyatira. They were doing some things well, but they were also falling off track. They were missing the mark. But in these areas, the areas of love and faith and service and endurance, they were ranking and grading really well. And I wonder for us today, as a church, if we were to be brutally honest as a church, how are, we, how are we grading out in the area of faith, in the area of love, in the area of service, in the area of patient endurance? How are you grading out in those categories? How are you doing? In this stage in your life right now, wherever you're at, whether you're in your, your teens or whether you're in your 80s or 90s, are you continuing to race toward the end of your life? You know, 
Paul talked about this in Philippians. He talked about it in Philippians chapter 3. Many of you are familiar with these verses. Starting in verse 13, Paul said this. He said, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, let those of us who are mature think in this way. Are you pressing on? Are you putting your foot on the gas? Or are you limping toward the finish line? I know every one of us are in different stages of life and we have different levels of energy that we can give, but I think it's okay uh, to admit that even though we may not be able to give quite the same amount of effort and energy that we once did, we can still, as Pastor Dave likes to say, attack hell with a squirt gun, you know? And I wonder how many of us are still doing that. I wonder how many of us on the flip side, might be sitting and soaking and souring because we're not being used the way we once were, because the church doesn't look like it once did, because we don't have the health that we once did, because things are just different and we long for the old days. I would ask you, what is it going to take for you to say, God can still use me? Yes, the church is evolving. Our practices might be evolving, but our teaching never does. The word of God is consistent and it's faithful and it's not changing. Maybe I need to change with some of the ways and some of the the, the things that we're doing and get off the bench and get involved. Man, are are you racing towards your finish line or are you limping toward it? The church in Thyatira, they were doing some good things. They were, they were growing very, very definitely. But at the same time, they were not super healthy. They had a passion to reach the lost, but in reaching the world, they became just like the world. And so Jesus can't overlook their sin. He can't overlook their faults. He has to deal with it. He had to deal with the corruption in this congregation. And so Jesus is looking for, he's looking for a congregation that magnifies Christ. He's looking for a church that advances in faith and good work, but he's also looking for us to be a church that refuses to tolerate sin. We should be a church who refuses to tolerate sin. Verse 20 of Revelation chapter 2 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You know, a good parent, when their child comes home with a a report card, a good parent won't look at a report card and see six A's and ignore the one F that's on the report card, would they? Like a good parent would definitely celebrate the successes, but he also or she also has to deal with the failures as well. And that's exactly what a good God has to do with his children. He's looking at this church in Thyatira. He's saying, you're doing all these things really well. Yes, I cheer you on, I celebrate, I commend you, but don't forget, this is what I have against you. This is what we now have to deal with. You're tolerating sin, you're tolerating this woman. And there was a woman in the congregation who considered herself a prophetess. She kind of gave her name, herself that title. She's teaching false doctrine, and Scripture doesn't tell us her actual name, but we know the name that Jesus labeled her with. And we know that names have meanings, don't they? They carry connotations with them. When our, when our youngest daughter was born, she was five weeks early. 
And we were not ready. We didn't have the nursery set up. We didn't have a crib set up. We didn't have a name picked out. And so along comes our daughter five weeks early, and we were really scared. We weren't sure what her journey was going to look like. And so as we prayed over picking a name, we come across the name Finley. Because the name Finley, if you look it up, means fair warrior. And we needed her to be a warrior. We needed her to be a fighter. We needed her to fight for life so that she could be healthy and so that she could grow. And little did we know how much she would own that name 11 years later because that girl is persistent. She is a fighter. She wants to have the last word and she will let you know. And I'm like, oh my goodness, if ever a name belongs to a child, it is Fair Warrior and Finley. Like it just works. Okay, so we know that names have, you know, labels carry connotations, certainly in the Bible. And this woman, Jesus doesn't tell us her real name, but he says she's a Jezebel. And that's not, you know, that's not a word of compliment. That's not a badge of honor, right? Like we know Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was the wicked queen of Israel, the, uh, the wife of King Ahab, and she was a murderer. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute, and her sole goal was to eradicate all of God's prophets. And not only eradicate them out of all of Israel, but she wanted to eradicate God completely out of Israel and institutionalize Baal worship. She was a wicked, wicked woman. And this woman in Thyatira, she's on that same plane in some ways, because Jesus says she's a Jezebel. She had a platform. She was smart. She was influential. She was powerful. Her teachings made a lot of sense, but the only problem was is that Satan was using her to seduce Christians into living lifestyles of sin. And the people tolerated it because they didn't know God's word. They didn't know what they were doing was sinful, some of them. Her teachings were pragmatic. They were relevant. They had a hint of truth, but they were starting to veer off of the way. And this woman was seducing people into sexual immorality and into eating foods that were offered to idols. She was introducing worldliness into the church. And Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. We got to take care of this. You can no longer tolerate this woman in your church because God calls his church to holiness and not harlotry. We need to be pure before the Lord. We need to be set aside for him and him only. He is jealous for our purity. He's jealous for our purity, and he will not tolerate sinful patterns. Folks, there will never be a time in your life where God will just dismiss your sin. That Jesus will just look at you and say, hey, listen, I know that the life of a disciple is difficult, and I know that it's hard to stay relevant with culture, and so it's okay this time. Jesus will never overlook it. He will never look at your sin and smirk. He will never look at your sin and blush. He will never turn a blind eye. He won't let it slide. And if you ever come to a point where you're like, Jesus understands, Jesus is okay with it. Understand that is not Jesus talking. That is the devil talking to you because Jesus must deal with sin. And so this makes life difficult for Christians sometimes because we're forced to deal with the consequences of a culture that wants nothing to do with what we believe. And when we live lives of righteousness and lives of holiness, the culture doesn't agree with that. And so we have to, we have to figure out how to navigate this life and the consequences that come with following Jesus and not tolerating sin. And here's the reality, folks, is that Jesus never promised us that this path would be easy. 
But what he did promise us was his presence. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, Lo, I am with you always. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He never said, I'll be, it'll be easy for you always. He said, I will be with you. We take his presence with us. So we shouldn't tolerate sin in the church. Number four, Jesus wants a church that repents quickly when disciplined. A church that repents di- quickly when disciplined. And we're going to move quickly through this one. But this is what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Yes, we know that God is long-suffering. Yes, we know that he is patient toward us. Yes, we know all of these things, but there comes a time when Jesus says, that's enough. That's it. I'm not putting up with this anymore. God will discipline his children because he is loving. When we fall into sin, he has to deal with it. And in his kindness... He won't, ref- he won't let us linger on a path of unrighteousness. He won't let us linger on a path of destruction that will ultimately destroy our spiritual lives. In fact, Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this. Paul was saying to the Romans, he said, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Folks, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And sometimes this discipline doesn't always feel kind in the moment. You remember what it was like when you were disciplined as a child. You didn't love it. You didn't enjoy it. It didn't always feel loving and it didn't feel kind. But over the years, as you look back, my guess is is that you think upon the times that you were disciplined assuming it was done in a way that honored the Lord. You probably look at your parents and say, They were being kind to me with their parental discipline because it made me who I am. It turned me around. It kept me from going deeper into my, uh, you know, my disobedience or my rebellion. It was their kindness that drew me back on the path of righteousness. I know this is the case in my life. So many times I got, I got spanked when I was a little kid. You know, my wife, she tells the story of, uh, when she was growing up, her, her parents had a paddle that said, Daddy's helping hand on it. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty cute. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure my parents had a paddle that said, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. And it did. But it made me who I am today. And I realized that my father loved me enough to correct me, to discipline me, to call me back to a path of righteousness because he didn't want me to tolerate sin in my life. He wanted me to repent and repent quickly. And this is how Jesus treats his church. But they had this woman in Thyatira who was not repenting and they were tolerating it. And Jesus says, it's time to get rid of her. Jesus gets a little bit harsh in this moment. He he starts dealing with them and he has, to, he, has to, he has to discipline them. And I want to give you four things that we learn about Jesus' discipline in our lives um, when, he, uh, when he has to correct us. First of all, understand that it's good. But the, the first one is this. His discipline is always fair. I'm going to give these to you quickly. His discipline is always fair. And we can see this in verses 21 through 25. It's fair. It's full. It's fearful. And it's faithful. See, Jesus gave her time to repent, but she wouldn't do it. He was fair. It was full in that when he wanted to discipline, he knew he was going to get their attention. He, he wasn't trifling around with them. He wasn't messing around with them. He was like, okay, 
My, my patience, like I've shown you patience and now it's time to correct you. It's time to get rid of this woman. And so he, 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 he offers up an explanation of what this discipline would look like and it was full. But it was also in order to get their attention quickly. It was also fearful. You know, we should have a fear of the Lord, that uh, a healthy fear of the Lord that keeps us from sinning, that keeps us from rebellion. And sometimes God has to discipline us in ways that are fearful. But he is also faithful. Scripture tells us that he didn't add an extra burden to those who didn't fall into the trap of this Jezebel in the church. He's faithful to restore those who repent. He's faithful to restore those who are his children. Jesus takes sin extremely seriously. And then number five, a church that Jesus wants to see is a church that stays while being seduced stays while being seduced. Verse 25, it says this as we close out. It says, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Satan is already a defeated foe. We know this, but he will not back down. He will not relent. So stick and stay. Stick with God. Stick close to his word. Stick with others in Christian community. Stick through the hardship and the trials and the suffering. Satan is going to throw everything that he has at you, including the kitchen sink. He's going to throw all of this at you to get you distracted and get you deceived so that you might give into the seductions of the world. And Jesus is saying, hold fast. Hold fast until I come because I'm coming again. Stay with me. So Christian, this morning, whatever you might go through, Whatever you have gone through, whatever might be coming, whether it be persecution, whether it be temptation, it does not matter. You stay close to Christ. You hold fast with white knuckle intensity. This is the kind of Christian that Jesus wants to see. This is the kind of church that he wants to see in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation. We should remember that it is Christ who we hold fast to. It is Christ who we magnify. It is Christ who we profess, and it is Christ that we persevere toward. This is the kind of church that he wants to see. This is what he was encouraging the church in Thyatira to become. He said, listen, you're doing all these things well, but you're, I've got one thing against you, and this is what you need to fix. And when you endure, when you conquer until the very end, I have a reward for you. Isn't that an amazing promise? We know that Jesus requires, like the path of a Christ follower is not an easy path. We know that he calls us to sacrifice. We know he calls us to endure. We know that he calls us to take up our cross and to carry that burden with us. He calls us to lay our lives down and to surrender to him. And it's not always easy. We know this, but here's the beauty, is that it's always worth it because there is an eternal reward. If you look further on in that chapter, it talks about we will receive the morning star. That is Jesus Christ himself. He has promised us the gift of himself. If we will endure, if we will conquer, if we will stay with him until the very end. So Christian, let's be that kind of a church that pursues Christ and perseveres to the end. Heavenly Father,